Yesterday, I spoke of our mission and vocation in Jesus as God's uh, sons and daughters. And of course, we are created out of the boundless love of God to live his love, to share in his love, to proclaim his love. And I mentioned that our own idea of ourself is very limited. The idea that we have of ourself is not fully us. Now, God alone can see the totality of our life. We merely live it moment by moment, and we can't bring all of our experience and our knowledge to mind in one moment. We can't just see ourselves from God's perspective. And yet, uh, God's is the real and true vision of each one of us as, our son, as his sons and daughters. We know that by the gift of faith, we accept his revelation of himself, but to accept his revelation of us, of who we are, that true, that is also part of the gift of faith, uh, the gift of a deep friendship with God, allowing Jesus who reconciled us to the Father, lead us uh, to the Father. Receiving the Father's love means receiving uh, what he has to show us of ourselves and what he has to give of himself, of course. And this is going to unfold over the course of our whole life as our relationship with God deepens. So one of my aims in speaking about these three nights is that we might have a different perspective, uh, something perhaps we haven't thought of or considered of our place in God's plan and our place in God's heart. So we may very humbly, recognizing our limitations, take the pressure off of ourselves of having to know ourselves in the way we think we should or having to think that we have ourselves figured out. We are mysterious to ourselves. There's no doubt about that. And we don't need to have God's view of us all at once either, but rather to learn from him by the Holy Spirit who we are and what it means to be his beloved child. Now, one of the themes of yesterday's reflection was the problem of power without grace. Tonight's talk is about grace with power, and by that I mean God's power, and that is the power of redemption. Um, So let us add to the prayers that we have already prayed by praying this prayer from blessed uh, John Henry Newman. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O my God, you have created me to do some definite service. You have committed some work to me that you have not committed to another. I have my mission. I am a link in a chain a bond of connection between persons. I will trust in you, whatever, wherever I am. If I am in sickness, my sickness may serve you. If I am in perplexity, my perplexity may serve you. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve you. You do nothing in vain. You know what you are about. Though friends be taken away, though I feel desolate, though my spirits sink, though my future is hidden from me, yet I will trust in you, for you know what you are about. I ask not so much to see as to be used through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. How blessed um, John Henry Newman takes this notion of our own vocation, our own mission, and and, um, expresses this very limited knowledge that we have of ourselves and what God is all about. Uh, it is pretty astounding that he puts it into, into these, these words in this beautiful prayer. And so what God is about, of course, is the work of redemption. And to redeem, in one sense, is to pay a price. In ancient Israel, redemption was rooted in the family. 
And the Hebrew word for redeem refers to the role of the nearest male relative who had the responsibility for paying any ransom needed to free all family members from captivity or from a slavery, um, a debt slavery. Now, as the father of Israel, God the father, God assumed the role of this redeemer. He was the Israelites' deliverer, the one who ransomed his people, the people he claimed as his firstborn, his chosen people, from the bondage uh, in Egypt. In the Old Testament, the stress on the redeeming activity of God is not on the notion that a ransom was paid, but that liberation was accomplished, deliverance was accomplished through God's power and through his love. So we see how God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt leads to their freedom into the promised land. Now, the exodus uh, from Egypt, it became a paradigm for salvation. It assured Israel that the Lord was a mighty redeemer who could save his people from any earthly predicament. And in the prophets, the first exodus created for the hope for a, another exodus, a new exodus in the future. Now, initially, this new exodus refers to the return from the exile in Babylon, but the promises that are made by the prophets were so grand and glorious that they can't be reduced to that one event. They have to speak of something um, in the future. So uh, what it is speaking of is the coming of the Lord Jesus, the singular uh, Redeemer. So let's just set that aside for a moment because there's one other important thing about redemption. It pertained also to the land. Um, an Israelite was able to redeem property that had been forced in, by economic hardship to sell. So he was able to get it back. The land could be redeemed when the owner could afford it to do so. He could buy it back. Or it could be reclaimed by the next of kin. And in a jubilee year, we just had the great jubilee year of mercy. This is from this tradition, you know, from the Jews, uh, that property reverted automatically to the re original owner or to the heirs. So we see how everybody was so happy about the jubilee, right? Uh, and houses in walled cities were redeemable for a period of one year from the date of sale, but not beyond that time. Houses outside the walled cities had no specific time limit for their redemption. Um, and all this is, sounds, uh, I don't know, maybe a little bit academic, but it's very, very important to think that this, um, th this, this act of redemption and the fact of redemption that it wasn't just limited to them being delivered. It was them reclaiming something that was uh, their own. And it's so, so very important to understand redemption in that light. Now, in the New Testament, uh, the, the redemption, this new redemption, this perfect redemption that is accomplished in Jesus Christ is at the very center of the gospel. At the cost of his own life, Jesus expiated the sins of the whole world. He delivered the human race from the dominion of darkness and its bondage to the devil. In his own words, Jesus came to offer his life as a ransom for many. Now, this uh, language of redemption is deeply uh, indebted to these Old Testament notions of deliverance and liberation and freedom. And it's primarily the exodus that shapes our understanding of Christ's redeeming work because he is the one who delivers us from sin. He is the one who delivers us from the, from the uh, slavery uh, of sin and to the devil. And so the people are not released from some political bondage as in Egypt, or the Jews are not freed from uh, the Romans, but rather we are freed from the dominion of the devil by Christ's offering. So the Christian life is this exodus of passing through the waters of baptism into a wilderness you know, of this life, which is testing and trials and 
all look like, that we grow in holiness and grow in grace, and where believers are guided by the Spirit and sustained by, uh, by the food that Christ gives us, the Eucharist. He gives himself to us uh, to continue that action of redemption in our lives. St. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, uh, that Jesus is the high priest and the spotless victim. Uh, He takes his blood into the sanctuary of heaven to secure this eternal redemption. He says, but now Christ has come as the high priest of all the blessing which were to come. He has passed through the greater, the more perfect tent, not made by human hands, that is not of this created order. And he has entered the sanctuary once for all, taking with him not the blood of goats and bull calves, but his own blood, having won an eternal redemption. So this is the reason, in part, for the ascension of Jesus, that he could be walking among us. He didn't choose to do so. But rather, he wanted his presence to be universal. His presence passed into the sacraments, and the Holy Spirit then is given to us. But then, he, as the high priest and the victim, he has to present himself before the heavenly throne. He has to be the priest, the offering, in heaven, going into that sanctuary once for all. As his sacrifice on the cross, he goes once for all, taking not with him the blood of goats, but rather his own blood. No, his wounds. It's by, uh, as St. John says in the book of Revelation, that he stands there before the throne of God as a lamb who is slain. Uh, so there he is, still our high priest, still interceding for us, still pleading for us before the throne of God. So this is the way that Jesus redeems us, and that redemption continues. He pays the price for our sins and the sins of all the ages. So this is, in this sense, redemption means that Jesus pays the debt that is owed for our sins. He pays the debt to free us, to ransom us. But there is another meaning of redemption, uh, the redemption that Jesus uh, does and that he wills. And he, it, is, it means that he makes up for what is lacking. He makes up for what is lacking. Now, we can't pay the price that is owed, right? Only Jesus can do that, truly God and truly man. He can pay the price. He makes up for what is lacking in the whole human race. Because we cannot buy our salvation. He supplies that which we cannot supply. So a simple example might be better, okay, in this sense of redemption, to make up for what is lacking. You with me? Father's otherwise boring and lengthy, uh, Father's otherwise lengthy uh, reflection was uh, redeemed uh, by its humor. Uh, you understand? The humor makes up for what is lacking, okay, in this, I, I admit, you know, a bit more of an academic uh, presentation than last night. To make up for what is lacking, though, this is so important. Uh, so the grace with power, Christ's power, is his redeeming action. It's the power to bring the greatest good, even out of the greatest evil. So think of it. Jesus, who emptied himself of his divinity in order to obey the Father's plan to accomplish our salvation, that he is betrayed by Judas. He is sold into slavery for 30 pieces of silver, sold into slavery. No, he is not just murdered. He is sold. And he suffers the full moral weight of our sins, the sins of all the ages in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the darkness and alienation and emptiness and rejection and failure. And even knowing that his offering of himself is going to be utterly rejected and scorned by so many, ignored by a great multitude, betrayed, you know, by his ostensibly holy people and those committed to his service, betrayed by some priests and bishops, betrayed even by some of his closest friends. 
And he is, it is received, this offering of himself that he makes, is received with carelessness and ingratitude over and over and over again. All of this he knows in his passion. All of this he knows, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he sweats drops of blood from his pores because this weight is so crushing on him. All of this. And then to endure the denial of St. Peter after his arrest, the humiliations and the interrogations, the scourging at the pillar, that long and lonely walk to Calvary, and then to the cross where he was crucified and hung for three hours. Three hours. We can't add to the evil that Christ endured. We can't even fully describe it. That heart that loved us with an infinite love suffered in a way that only the Blessed Virgin Mary can know. And what were his last words from the cross? Very last words. He says, well, on Good Friday, in our modern translation, we hear, it is finished. It is finished. Okay, the Latin says, it is consummated. Consummatum est. It is consummated. He offers all for his one bride, the church. There's a nuptial meaning there. He's giving his whole self to his bride. On the cross, his arms are open to embrace her, and it wasn't, the merely, it wasn't merely the nails that held him there, but his love. He had to do this for his beloved. He had to do this for us. There was just no other way that he could show his love. And in death, his heart is pierced. And we know that, that blood and water poured from his side, and the church is born from the spring of mercy and supernatural life in God. Now, the church has always understood that water and blood that flowed from his side to be the cleansing, purifying waters of baptism and the Eucharist. So God can bring the greatest good even from the greatest evil. That is redemption. If he can do that, if he can do that, then he can bring the greatest good even from our sins, our suffering, what we have done, what has been done to us. He can bring the greatest good from all of this. So we are not damaged goods, okay? There is not some part of us that is like beyond repair or beyond redemption. There is not some part of us that the Lord can't look upon. There is not uh, some part of us uh, that he hates. Everything can be redeemed, everything. So think of the redemption of the land again. And this is why I mentioned this, because this means if we're claiming back, you know, what is rightfully ours by virtue of our sonship, this means that that in our, our trust in God's redeeming power, that grace with power, that our past then can be redeemed. That everything that seemed fruitless or empty or evil, that is, it can be claimed by God that he may bring good of it. And not just any good, but the greatest good. There's a lot of brokenness in the world. A lot. A lot of brokenness in us. But all of this can be redeemed and healed. This is the most important thing that we need to understand about God's redeeming power. There really are no limits. No limits at all. Now, uh, C.S. Lewis, not a Catholic, good Anglican, great writer. He wrote in this little novel, The Great Divorce. He speaks about redemption in this dialogue, you know, with one of the holy ones, a, a uh, uh, someone who's already made it, okay, who's guiding, you know, that visitor uh, to heaven. Um, and he says, you, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. This is what mortals misunderstand. They say, some, they say of some temporal suffering, 
no future bliss can make up for this, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this and I'll take the consequences, little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled with only dreariness. And that is why the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost will say, we were always in hell. And both will be correct. And see, we see our sins and our failings as something that uh, we wish just weren't part of us anymore. I have this confessional stole. Um, I, would, I should have thought uh, to bring it, not like it would make a very good prop with all of you people being good Catholics sitting in the back of the church tonight. Um, but uh, the fellow who makes my vestments is the same fellow who made a lot of Father Birgitta's vestments. His name is Mr. Obst, and he is now probably 96 years old. And he lives up in Philadelphia. He was a uh, costume maker for theater companies and opera companies in, in New York City all of his life. Took the train every day from Philly up to New York and back again. And when he retired, he made vestments for priests. That's all he did. And so when, uh, when a priest would meet him and, and give him a drawing or give him a sketch or something like that, and he'd say, I need some of this and some of that and some of these and six yards of this and two of those and three and a half yards of that. And then you'd go get the fabric and send it to him. And six weeks later, there would be some glorious, you know, vestment-ready package in the mail. You know, it would be amazing. And you've seen his vestments. Actually, he made this that I'm wearing right now, this stole. Um, he'd never charged a dime to priests. He would accept some, uh, a donation. You know, he would accept that. But he would never charge. So all we ever had to do was pay for the fabric. Now, if that is not treasure in heaven, I don't know what is. Uh, Anyway, when I first met him, uh, I asked him to make two confessional stoles, uh, one for me and one for my dad, which you would think, why would my dad need a confessional stole? Well, the tradition is that on the day of your ordination, that you uh, hear a confession or confessions, and then the next day at your first mass, you give the stole to your father, because that stole is a symbol of the love of the father, God the father, who gave his son for the life of the world. Uh, and so this is the great symbolism in it, the great beauty uh, in it. Now, my dad is not a priest. My dad is still married to my mom, quite happily, I might add. My dad is still with us, thanks be to God. So he's not hearing confessions, he's not. But I wanted him to have it. I wanted him to remember. And the tradition is also that he's buried with it, so that he can present it to God the Father and say, you know, of all the good work that he did for the kingdom, that he, he gave his son as a priest. And there's a similar gift that uh, one gives to, a priest gives to his mother. I'd love to tell you about that, but I'll probably end up in a puddle of mush here in the sanctuary if I begin speaking about that. But I had these identical stoles. Like one, he made one, I gave it to my dad. And I worked for it too. I mean, I didn't just hear some stupid seminarian confession on the day of my ordination. You know, I didn't, I, I wanted to work for it. So after, or after I got ordained and, 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 and went through the reception at uh, the cathedral, I went back to St. Rita and sat in the sin bin, you know, for that whole time in the afternoon hearing confessions, because I really wanted to work for it. You know, I really did. Um, 
And I think the pastor's like, hey, this newly ordained priest is going to be hearing confessions. Everybody come, you know. He's never heard any sins. You'll never see him again. You know, this is going to be great. So, uh, so anyway, I was there for a while. I mean, it was exhausting. Uh, and and uh, then I gave the stole to my dad. He still has it, of course. Well, I keep that other stole, the, the match of it. I keep it uh, in my office because I always want to remember I always want to remember where I come from, who I am, who my father is, my earthly father and my heavenly father, and why it's so important uh, to be, you know, a good priest. Now, I noticed one day when I was putting it on uh, that on the back of the stole that the fabric, he made a mistake, the tailor, Mr. Ops, he made a mistake. He cut it where it wasn't supposed to be cut. It was just an error, but he sewed it back up again, you know, so that it was, you know, just perfectly fine. But, you know, I wanted it to be flawless, you know, immaculate, you know, no problems whatsoever. It didn't even matter that it was on the back of the stole. And I thought, I'm going to go up next time I see him, I'm going to bring this. I'm going to say, replace this, the back part of this stole, because I want it to be perfect. You know, because I'm a brat, you know, newly ordained guy, total brat. And, um, and I, I got over myself after a couple of weeks, and I realized that that, that place on the back of the stole that he had to sew up again, that is confession. That is you. It's each one of you when you go to confession. And it's not just you, it's me. The fact is that God's mercy makes us whole again. You know, the wounds don't go away in the sense that it's not like there's no evidence of, of the wounds of sin. Okay, but God's grace shines through, just like his grace shines through the wounds in Jesus' hand and in his feet and in his heart. Those wounds won't go away because they're the proof of his love, the proof of his glory. And it's, and it's the same with us. You know, we'll see those wounds in heaven, but we'll see Christ's love and Christ's grace and Christ's power shining through them. You know, but we think it's got to be perfect. I've got to be perfect. You know, gosh, all, all the sins, all your sins, they're on the back of the stole. You know, there's so much from the past that nobody can know about, so much from the past that not even you can really know about if you really call it to mind. And yet we hold on to this as this burden, you know, this terrible burden. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Now, I often think that um, we have this notion that when we go finally to heaven, to St. Peter, we'll ring the bell at the desk at the pearly gates, and he'll come out and say, oh, hello, uh, Joseph, I've been waiting for you. We were expecting you uh, today. So let me go back. I pulled your file. I'm going to go back and, and bring it out. I, I just, I have it back here. So he comes back out with a big file and plops it down on the thing and starts going through it, looking and seeing and all this stuff. And, and we think that if all the good that we did in this life, that outweighs all of the bad that we did in this life, then we get to come in. You know, maybe some time in purgatory, okay? But if, 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 the, if the good is greater than the bad, you know, then somehow we're going to make it. We're going to be okay, right? Nothing could be farther from the truth. There is no permanent record. There is no permanent record. You remember the, uh, have you heard the story of the um, St. Margaret Mary when the sacred, when these revelations, her private revelations in the sacred heart of Jesus, when he began to appear to her, and she told uh, her um, spiritual director about this because this is what the Lord willed, that he would, he, she would communicate it with him. And that he said, if this is really the Lord appearing to you, then the next time that he appears to you, you ask him what the contents of my last confession were. And so she did. 
And the Lord, he said, I don't know his sins. I have forgotten them. Imagine the immensity of God's mercy. Unbelievably beautiful how it could be so that this God who is perfect and omniscient and omnipotent and all-knowing, that he would forget our sins out of his love for us. That's how much he treasures us. That's the power of his love and his mercy to redeem us, to perfect what has been imperfect, to heal what has been wounded, to bring about the greatest good that is possible from even uh, the worst things that have happened. Now I'll tell you my advice about how you should think about, how we should think about our sins after we have gone to confession. Okay, after we have gone to confession. Um, this may be the most important thing. I, I, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not bragging. I'm not tooting my own horn here, but this is very important. This might be the most important thing that I say. I'm not trying to be overdramatic here. I'm not trying to take this wine, big wind up here to this. But, but look, if you, if you ever think about any of your past sins after you have gone to confession, and praise the Lord for his mercy and praise him for his love. If anything comes to mind, you just praise the Lord for his mercy and praise him for his love. Because we don't have to hold anything against ourselves. God has forgiven us. God has truly forgotten our sins. Why do we hold them against ourselves? Like something is holding us back from heaven. Something is holding us back from the glory that is ours. Something is holding us back from, the, 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 from our claim as heirs of Christ. There is nothing holding us back when we repent, when we believe, when we trust, when we strive to live that life in Christ. There is nothing that is holding us back, and the devil has no claim. Well, I'm sure you've heard the expression, the, devil, the past is a devil's playground. Okay, now I'm about at the limit of that generation of, of people that understand that. Me and above understand that expression. Anybody else who I've ever told that who are, who's younger than me, they don't get it. They don't get it. But I think we do. I think we do. Because the devil is always trying to stir up those memories of our, of our sins, either to accuse us or to tempt us or discourage us or make us doubt in God's goodness, make us doubt in how good of a father he is. He has no claim. Zero. Zero claim. And so this is why, if we ever think about any of these things, anything, we praise the Lord for his mercy and we praise him for his love. And I promise you that the devil will flee. He will flee because he can't stand it. That's his part of redemption, by the way. These temptations that come to us, it's not all bad in a sense that however we respond to it makes it a cause of virtue, a cause of grace. So we can even say, hey, it's not bad that I'm having, I'm not bad that I'm being tempted, uh, tempted, not bad at all, but rather a chance to grow in grace, a chance uh, to choose God, a chance um, to cooperate in his power to redeem. It's pretty amazing. So by Jesus offering himself, we are delivered from our slavery to sin the devil has no claim on us whatsoever. We are reconciled to God and to each other in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit is given to us and we are made God, God the Father's sons and daughters. In a word, we are redeemed. We are redeemed. But redemption doesn't end there because it's God will, God's will that we have a part in our redemption, that it doesn't happen passively to us. It reminds me of the quote of St. Augustine who said, God who made us without our consent will not save us without our consent. And so this redemption is 
ongoing, ongoing as Christ redeems the world, right? He's still redeeming us. He has paid the price for our sins, no doubt, but he is still making up for what is lacking. He is still perfecting us by his power, in his power. Now, St. Peter is a great example of redemption. You know, can you imagine the pain that it caused Jesus after he had been arrested, you know, after he had been betrayed by Judas? He knew what was coming. He predicted it. But then to see Peter, to see his face after he had denied him three times. I mean, how that must have crushed him. I was thinking today, which, what, was the, what was the worst pain for Jesus? The betrayal of Judas or the denial of Peter? I don't know. I don't know. But Peter had to, as he made that threefold denial, after the resurrection, the Lord coaxed him into making this threefold reparation. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me with this perfect and self-sacrificing love, with this perfect love, the love with which I love you? Do you love me with that love? That's the first, first expression of love that he uses. Do you love me like a brother? Or do you love me merely as a friend? He goes through these levels, right, to get down to the heart of Peter so that he can raise him up again so that Peter can be redeemed. Peter, of course, cooperates with that. And so our cooperation with our redemption, we do this by way of our own repentance. And it's not merely the sorrow from, of sin. It's not just, I'm sorry that I did that. It is that sorrow and that idea that, or the fact that we don't want this to be part of our life anymore. And you know, frankly, it doesn't have to be. I mean, we're all going to have weaknesses. We're all, all manners that we can all grow in virtue. But serious sins, you know, mortal sins, these do not have to be part of our life, part of our experience. Don't have to be. I mean, we don't have to accept the, that, that kind of slavery. And so repentance is more than regretting. It is truly turning away. We, we, that we want to be free, that we trust in the Lord's power to free us. But, you know, sometimes we want to hold on to that pleasure, or we want to hold on to our pride, or we want our own will, or we think it really all uh, depends on us, that somehow we can redeem ourselves. Hasn't that, isn't that something that has crept into, into our language, that, you know, we do certain things to redeem ourselves? Do you ever see the movie The Mission? Uh, about the Jesuits in um, South America. This is not that old of a movie. Well, I mean, I guess now it's probably like 25, 30 years old. Gosh. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> up here sometimes. Um, uh, but, you know, this penance for these awful sins that this fellow has committed, and he, now he wants to, has, has this great conversion, wants to enter into religious life. You know, it, um, wants to be a Jesuit. And they impose this terrible penance on him. Uh, but he chooses it, really, truly. And he carries all of this armor, all of, this, all of these weapons, the swords and what have you, in this uh, you know, net that he carries you know, all the way through the jungle, all the way up the, the, the falls, all the way to see those Indians that who he uh, took advantage of, who he you know, manipulated, who he uh, uh, even killed. Right? And the first thing that those Indians do who have learned you know, the mercy from the, these Jesuits. Comes up to him with a knife, and you think it's a very dramatic moment in this movie. Comes up to him with a, right up to him with a knife, and he's saying, speaking in a language that the, the viewer doesn't understand. 
you're speaking very intensely and you think something awful is going to happen. And he cuts that net apart and throws it over the falls into the, into the river. And it's gone. It's gone. It's just this beautiful scene in this movie. You know, I often think about that and the other advice I give about confession is, uh, you know, it's like all of your sins are just dropped into the ocean of God's mercy. You've been to the beach, have you not? Imagine going out to the edge of the water. The waves are coming up and you squeak out one tear, you know, and it drops into the waves. You would be a fool to think that you could climb in and pull it back out again or that you could find it. You know, you'd be a fool. And so there's the utter futility of beating ourselves up about our past sins. To learn, sure. Okay, to learn, to not repeat them, sure. But to beat ourselves up over them, to accuse ourselves, to think somehow this is keeping God from working or keeping God from loving us, we don't have to live with that at all, at all. You know, but we, you know, we do have to come to terms with attachments to sin in our life. I know plenty of people who pray that prayer, create in me a clean heart, create in me a clean heart, um, but not what immediately follows, which is renew in me a steadfast spirit. Think of the whole thing, create in me a clean heart, renew in me a steadfast spirit. So that we have to have the courage in the face of temptations to witness the power of the gospel to ourselves, to witness who we are, you know, to ourselves. You know, to not just think we get tempted and it's game over. We can overcome in Christ. We are more than victorious in Christ who loves us. Now our suffering too, and the trials of life, that this has meaning, it has purpose. And there is this current in uh, Christianity these days, a very modern current uh, of the, I'm sure you've heard of this, the prosperity gospel. If you are righteous, then God will bless you with health and wealth and long life and all of this stuff. And there are television pastors, you know, pastors who, you know, fill up a whole stadium full of people you know, who are making money hand over fist over this gospel of, of self-actualization. Like, be the best version of yourself that you can be. Um, and you look, there's a, a Catholic fellow who's, who's on the speaking circuit who says that, okay, be your best self kind of thing. Um, I hate that language. I've just got to be honest with you. I hate it. I hate it with a burning passion, with a passion that is so hot it is holy. Okay, and the reason being is there is no version of you. And we can't strive to be this version or that version or the other version. We can strive to grow in virtue. We can strive to grow in holiness. We can strive to be who God made us to be. But you know, all the while, we are just being the one who God loves. And that's where we should put our energy. Not being the best version of myself. Not that I can pat myself on the back and say, I was the best version of myself that I could be today. You know, I mean, I think that is a bunch of garbage. Here I'm getting all, like, worked up about it now. Uh, be the one who God loves. Be the one who God loves. Because he has given all of these things in our life meaning. Including, you know, our weaknesses. The temptation, suffering. It has a purpose. It has meaning because of Jesus. You know, before, it was just, it had no meaning whatsoever. And if you, that you suffered, this is what the Jews believed, that if you suffered, then you must have sinned. There's some terrible malady. You know, that you're enduring or that your sons have or something like that, then it must be because you've sinned. You know, well, no, this is, this is not what we believe at all. That suffering is redeemed. Now, there's a student at Paul VI, lovely lady. Uh, she is a senior 
Uh, and she's the kind of student that I wish I had known all four years. I'm sure I'll have this great experience as I stay at Paul VI for a while, I hope. But uh, she lost her dad two years ago. And if you can imagine a teenage girl, sophomore in high school, losing her dad. She gave this testimony to a group of juniors at, on a retreat this past weekend. And she said that suffering can bring us closer to God or push us away. It just depends on how much we really trust in him. You know, so here's this words coming from a 17-year-old young lady. She understands. She understands. And so our suffering can be united to the suffering of Christ. And then it's imbued with a fruitfulness that only is possible with him. So you don't have to let anything go to waste. We've got to take uh, the Lord at his word when he speaks to St. Paul. And he says, all things work for the good of those who love God. All things. That's Romans 8, 28. You know, that's another thing that we can remind ourselves of when we're tempted. Or when life isn't so great. All things work for the good of those who love God. Not some things. Not the things that I want. Not the things that I wish I could have. But all things work for the good of those who love God. So when we cooperate with God's redeeming will, we're, we're not, uh, of course, he's, he's accomplishing this work in us, you know, over time. And we're not going to see the fruits of it immediately. Just like I said, we can't know ourselves completely. You know, we just have this vaguest understanding of ourselves moment to moment. We can't un- see God's hand in the way that uh, he is guiding us and others and guiding us with others and to others. We can't see all of that. You know, just moment by moment that we can, you know, be committed to him and be his disciple, be his son, be his daughter. But we don't have to be attached to outcomes or to seeing, you know, what it is that the good that we have done or the good that God is doing. You know, even if we're perfectly humble and think, you know, I'm glorifying the Lord for everything, but we want to see it, we're not going to see it. You know, I know this very well. Every priest knows this. Because the word, I mean, we might speak a phrase that speaks to someone in such a way that it changes everything for them, but that's that moment of grace, you know, and then uh, years, years later, maybe, probably not, but somebody comes up, that thing, that one thing that you said in this homily, and this is what it was, and God spoke to me, and this is what, this is what happened in my life. And a priest is thinking, I said that? I have no recollection of that whatsoever. But, you know, more often than not, we don't see. I mean, we don't see. You know, that moment of grace in confession, the grace that is given you in Holy Communion, you know, that what the impact of our preaching, the impact of our witness, we just don't see it. We, we need to not be attached to those outcomes. Jesus, believe me, you can see through the, from, in the Gospels from the beginning to the end, he is not attached to any outcomes at all. You know, he is not anything like us where he experiences rejection, and we're like, oh, please don't reject me. Oh, that gosh, that hurts so much. I don't want to feel those feelings. It feels so bad when you do that. That really hurts my heart. Please don't reject me. Jesus never, ever does that. He is who he is. He loves perfectly. And to all of those people who he preaches, who he heals, who he raises up, you know, that he is who he is. And it doesn't, they can't take anything away from him. They can't. And similarly, nobody can take away anything from us because we are God's sons and daughters. And so as we're working in the kingdom and cooperating with redemption, that we should fully rely on God and trust in God and to not be attached to the outcomes, especially the outcomes that we might desire, because God's plan is the best plan. God's will is his glory.
Now, there's something also that we have to understand about redemption that is very, very important. And this is part of our human nature. And it is the fact that what is cheaply gained for us is cheaply held. What is dearly gained is dearly held. I don't think you've known any lottery winners, have you? Who've hit the big Powerball, hundreds of millions, you know, life changed overnight. You haven't known any of them, have you? But you've certainly read about them in the newspaper, right? Yeah, hey, this person won the big Powerball, quit their job, you know, whatever. And then you can pretty much mark the calendar, and three or four years later, you're going to find that person in the paper again. They lost it all. And their life and their family is just this wreckage that came from that affluence that they didn't understand, appreciate, they didn't work for, and they just they frittered it away, okay? Does it happen with every lottery winner? I don't think so, but I think it happens with most of them. You know, I think it really does. I don't know, it seems like such an earthly example, but of, of what's cheaply gained is cheaply held. Um, but think of this, this, these movements in recent years. Okay, I'll give you another real-world example. Kindergarten graduation. I mean, Father Mould will uh, confirm with this that when we as priests, if there's a parish school, that we get invited to a kindergarten graduation, that we make an intention, we make an offering of that time as penance so that souls are flying out of purgatory as we're, going, as we're enduring this. That, you know, they all, everybody, everybody gets this little kindergarten graduation uh, certificate. And, you know, we, you know like we priests are like the realists, right? And I'm sitting back, I'm holding myself down in the chair because I want to get up on my kids. This is as good as it gets, okay? I mean, this is it. It is totally downhill from here, you know? Um, but you can't say that because then you spoil kindergarten graduation and they'll all end up in therapy and, you know, be terrible adults and all of that stuff. And then they'll blame you and blame the church and it'll just be this awful disaster. Um, so they can't do that. But this speaks to this whole thing, like everybody gets something. Participation, plaque, all of that. Who cares, right? What's cheaply gained is cheaply held, right? But what is dearly gained is dearly held. Now, there is no one who shows this better than Jesus. No one. Because you see what he did for us. I've described it like three times in this series, in this series of talk. In, in this, this talk today and yesterday, that of all that he endured to save us, all that he endured to redeem us, all that he endured to show his love for us, to give his love to us, all of that, he shows us truly that what is dearly gained is dearly held. And it shows us how dear we are to him because he would do all of this for us. And so again, I say, repeating, God has nothing to prove to you. Nothing, nothing at all. He has done it. He has done it. You see, right here. So what is dearly gained is dearly held. This is how dear we are to the Lord God, that he would give himself, that he would empty his life, that his heart would be open for us. How dear we are to God, how dear we are to the Father, because he loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus. This is, this is how dear we are to him. Okay? To be his own, to be his sons and daughters, it is hard. Okay, life is hard. Father Gould, former vocation director, he said, life is pretty hard. It's even harder when you're stupid. And he was speaking about seminarians, right? Um, but life is hard, okay? Life is hard. It's even harder being a Christian. It's even harder. It's supposed to be. It's not bad. We don't have to run away from the suffering and the difficulties, but we can glory in them 
because that is how God is redeeming us and redeeming the world. So we can rejoice in that. We can. We do have to understand this about ourselves. It's supposed to be hard. If it was easy, it wouldn't matter. You know, if Jesus came down and got a paper cut and said, okay, I shed a drop of blood for you, we're good. Nobody would care. Nobody. But he did this. He gives himself to us. Right? This is how dear we are to him. And so we live in this great redeeming love, in this great power, the the power of grace, where he brings the greatest good, even from the greatest evil, can do that with all of us. He can make us whole. He can draw us to himself in the depth of his heart, make us one with him and one with the Father, and he can continue to build this glorious kingdom until the end of the age. And so tomorrow, I will speak uh, about uh, that oneness, that, com- that communion. I will speak uh, about that, uh, and I hope that uh, even more people will come tomorrow. You might consider bringing a friend or two.